0: Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, it's been more years than I care to think about, but it was a Christmas time, and we went down to the Christmas parade downtown. And uh, one of our middle girls, Emily, was pretty small then, four or five, I don't remember, but along in there. And it was the year that more than anything, she wanted an angel Barbie. That was the big gift for her that year, the angel Barbie. Anyway, we went down to the Christmas parade, and, and um, I remember that particular year, my father-in-law and I, Jack was still with us, we were on one side of the street, and if I remember the story correctly, uh, Noxie had gotten in some kind of a verbal scuffle with some people down there, and so for that reason, Jack and I thought it would be better for us to be on the opposite side of the street from her, because I don't know how Jack felt, but I didn't want to fight my way out of there. So I had on one side of the street, I was, we were watching the parade, and and. Uh, Jack and I decided to try and beat some of the traffic that would be exiting at the end of the parade that we would begin to to walk toward the car and uh, the parade was still going on and we were walking toward the floats as they were coming on so we weren't going to miss anything because at the very end who is at the Christmas parade but Santa Claus and of course Emily wanted to see Santa Claus and so we were walking toward and we got to the corner where everything was turning onto the parade route and here comes the very last float with Santa on it. And, and I'm holding her and we're walking sort of away and she's waving at Santa and, and the float turns the corner and gets as close to her as it would ever be, and there is Santa himself, and he looks right at her, he leans over, and he waves at her, and I'm holding her like this, and she's back that way, and she saw her moment and seized it, and she yelled as loud as she could, Angel Barbie! (laughs) Just so he'd know. It was kind of a now or never moment for her just to get that request in. It was raw desperation, I think, that drove that angel Barbie request. And today we're going, to, we're going to see a man that is also in a now or never encounter with Jesus. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, 18 is the chapter. I've thought a lot about this man's now or never encounter. If you're a Bible reader, you're fairly familiar with this story And you know it maybe in several different retellings, because three of the gospel writers tell this story in some form or fashion. And it's one of those stories where the critics have seized upon it and said, aha, there are contradictions in God's Word. The stories don't line up. Because you see, when Dr. Luke, the one we're looking at today, when he records the healing of a certain blind man. He tells about it as Jesus is approaching Jericho, the city of Jericho. While Mark, when he tells the story of the healing of the blind man, he gives him a name. He says his name is Bartimaeus. And he talks about it as Bartimaeus is waiting there and Jesus is going out of Jericho. With Luke, it's approaching Jericho with Mark, it's going out of Jericho. When Matthew tells the same story, he records the healing of two blind men as Jesus again leaves Jericho. So the critics seize on this and they say, Aha! You see, we told you that God's Word is not reliable because these stories, they don't line out. These parallel accounts raise all kinds of difficulties about the location of the miracle and the number of people that are involved well, the problem of the location of the miracle can be reconciled when you observe that in the ancient world, in the time of Jesus, there were two Jerichos. Herod, the puppet king who was dragged, kicking and screaming to convert to Judaism, had built another Jericho, different from the ancient Jericho. He'd built another Gentile. Jericho, where Jews were not allowed, and it wasn't too terribly far from the old Jericho. So there were two Jerichos. Therefore, Jesus could have been leaving the old city of Jericho and could have been approaching the new city of Jericho when the miracle that we're going to look at in Luke 18 took place. And the the number of people that were healed has been reconciled by suggesting that while two men were involved, Matthew says there were two men that were healed. Mark and Luke, they talked about the more conspicuous of the two. And after all, two doesn't mean there can't be one. The correct solution may even be simpler than that when you think about it. It could be that the three Gospels are recording different events that took place about the same time. That's certainly possible because they over and over again record the fact That Jesus often healed the multitudes of people in many different places. So Jesus may have healed one blind man as he approached Jericho. And he may have healed Bartimaeus and two others as he departed from Jericho. And it could have been all different times. So it's not hard to reconcile. So no real contradiction here. But the story involves this blind man. We're given to know that like most blind men, because blindness in that day for one reason or another was fairly common, and if you were blind, you couldn't work, you were also a beggar. So the blind man is begging, sitting by the side of the road, begging. He's completely at the mercy of everybody who passes by. He's begging as he does every day. And as he's begging, he hears something. Now, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I've heard people say that when you lose one sense, in this case sight, your hearing is improved. I don't know if that's true or not, but maybe this man was able to hear even before the other people, even before the parade approached very closely. Maybe he heard something out of the ordinary, and he asked the question, what is that noise? What is approaching He hears a crowd beginning to go by and he asks those around him because he cannot see what is all the noise about and what is this occasion. He began to inquire. The Bible says what all this is about. Now, Luke is the only one who records him asking a question. And the answer he gets back from the bystanders is Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, that's kind of curious. It's a little bit on the odd side because Nazareth had a very bad reputation. It would be like saying, Jesus from Compton, or Jesus from Pumpkin Center, or Jesus from Button Willow. It had a certain reputation about it. In fact, we know that because one of Jesus' followers, when Jesus first taps him to follow him, a guy by the name of Nathaniel, when he's told... Jesus comes from Nazareth, his response is, Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Had a bad reputation, but they say Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And when the blind man hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth, it's the reputation about the man, not about his place, that catches his attention. And it says he begins to call out, hoping to get Jesus' attention, he begins to call out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. On me. And the people around him try and shut him down. Jesus of Nazareth? No. Jesus, son of David. Have mercy, mercy on me. In verse 31 of this same chapter, we've already been told Jesus has already said that he's going to Jerusalem. That's where he's headed on this day. He's headed toward Jerusalem. It's near the end. And it's at Jerusalem where all of the prophecies about the son of David would be fulfilled. The son of David, that's a code word for Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one, the king, the one who's been anointed. And as this anointed one enters the city in just a very few days, you know what the crowds will shout. They will call out to him, blessed is the king, the anointed one, who comes in the name of the Lord. So you know what that means? That means that this dirty, blind beggar is really playing the unlikely role of the prophet. When he calls out and he says, Jesus, you are the son of the great King David. And sons of kings are what? They're kings themselves. They're anointed ones. This is the anointed one. And, 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 and Jesus responds in kind to the man. Now, why did that crowd around him rebuke that blind man? Why did they try and shut him up? It may have been because of his choice of words. It may have been because he used that title, son of David. And they said, that's a bridge too far for us. He's a healer. He's a teacher. He's a prophet. But we're not sure he's really God's son. We're not sure he's the king. And so they rebuked that man and they tried to get him to shut up. And it may have been because of that title, It may have been because they presumed Jesus is not interested in talking with you, blind man, so shut your mouth and stop drawing attention to yourself because he's not interested. But what was that man's reaction? It says he cried out even louder, but the cry in verse 39 is different than the cry in verse 38, you see. In fact, some of our Bibles say he cried out all the more, so much more. I like the way the message says it. It says he only yelled all the louder when they told him to be still. And this cry, this time, it is a frenzied scream. It is an emotional shout. It's almost an animal cry. And that that blind beggar, he's crying out now because he is desperate. If he were ever to have a chance to do something besides beg and be something besides blind, it is now or it is never. When he cries out, Jesus stops. And when Jesus responds to this blind man who calls him the son of David, he's saying, yes, that title does indeed belong to me. And Jesus stops and he says, what do you want? That's not so strange a question when you think about it. The man had cried, and what had he cried for? He had cried for mercy in a general sense. Have mercy on me. But when Jesus stops and gives him his attention, he asks for him, please be specific. Be exact, precisely what is it that you want. Do you think he does that to us? We call to him and he wants us to be specific. The Bible says that our God knows our daily needs. He knows what we need every day before we ask for anything. He knows. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about our needs, we we have a need to eat and to drink and for shelter and for clothing. And He's saying, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread, didn't He? Even though the Father knows what our needs are, He taught us to Pray for our daily bread, our everyday common needs. That's what he does with this man. Even though the Father already knows, he invites our requests. and, And the man's request in this case is simple and it's direct. I want to regain my sight. I want to regain my sight. Did you notice that? What that means is the curse that he lived with was especially terrible because he had once been able to see. And he has lived every day since he lost his sight, knowing what a gift and what a treasure he had lost. I want to regain my sight. I want to see again. The story ends up, pick it up in that 18th chapter, verse 42. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. You know, in this case, his own faith is instrumental in the healing. It's not always that way. Jesus caused people to rise from the dead, and it wasn't their faith that did it. But in this case, he's saying, somehow, your faith is instrumental. Don't ask me why the Lord does it one way sometimes and another way another times. I don't know. But in this case, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight, and he began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. You know, when you can't see, you don't know what you don't know. Let me say it again. When you cannot see, you don't know what you don't know. To be blind is to be what? To be blind is to be lost. And often the worst part of being lost, remember a time that you've been lost. Remember, the the worst part of being lost is that period when you don't know that you're lost. You don't know how really lost you are. That's the worst thing about being lost. But another terrible time is when you begin to sense that you're lost, but you have no clue how to get back on track. And that's awful too. Now in both of those descriptions... Not knowing that you're lost, but knowing and not how to get back. I just described much of our world, didn't I? Because there are many people who are lost. And I only bring it up to tell you please don't be hard on the lost. Because in many cases, they aren't aware of how lost they are. They don't know what lostness is, even though they're lost themselves. And that's the most frightening part of being lost, isn't it? When you're without Christ, you don't know what you don't know. And when you can't see, you have to do what this man did. You have to to literally take it as it comes. When he asked the question, what's going on around here? They told him, Jesus is passing. And that was sort of true. Because we find out as the story unfolds that Jesus had no earthly intention of just passing this man. But they told him Jesus is passing and he had to accept what they said because he was blind. that's That's a beggar's life in a nutshell, isn't it? They have to accept what's given to them. You have to take it as it comes. You've heard the phrase, beggars can't be what? Choosers. And this man had to take it as it came to him. And they told him Jesus is passing, and that was kind of true. But then they told him something else that wasn't true at all. They said, and he doesn't want to hear all of your noise. And that was a treacherous lie, actually. But he had to take it because he couldn't see until Christ. You and I are blind, and blind means that you're subject to lies and you're subject to error. Jesus talked to one of his friends some, one time, Simon Peter. And he told him, he said, I see what you don't see, Simon Peter. You're just drifting through life, and you think things happen. But what you don't realize that I know is Satan has desired to sift you like wheat to tumble you this way and that, and to play with you like a cat plays with a little toy. You want to hear some incredible news? Though it's true that when we are blind, we are lost and we cannot see, and part of not being able to see is you have to take it as it comes, and you can get sifted by the enemy like wheat. There's some incredible news in the book of Hebrews We're told this, talking about Jesus who likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him that had the power of death, that is the devil, listen, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He sets us free and he gives us sight and we're no longer lost and we don't have to be subject as slaves the rest of our life to the enemy and to the lies and the errors around us. We don't have to take it as it comes. When you're blind, you do. But when you finally see, you find out that it's what you always wanted. You know, I think that nearly everybody on the planet, there may be some exceptions, and I only say that because I haven't met everybody on the planet yet. But I think that nearly everybody that's ever lived is seeking Jesus Christ. They're seeking a Savior. Now, they may look in the strangest of places, but I believe that everybody is really seeking Christ. G.K. Chesterton, a, a bright and brilliant mind, he said, you have to realize that every man that goes knocking at the door of the house of the prostitute is really looking for Jesus Christ. Now, he would be surprised if the Lord opened the door, but he's really looking for Jesus Christ. He's looking for a satisfaction that can only come from a Savior. He's asked, what do you want? The man says, I want to see again. He remembered how long that darkness was on him or or why it came on him, we don't know. But he, he remembered what it was like to see one time. And he says, I want to be able to see again. You know, there's only one direction to move when you can't see, and that's toward the one that you know can help. There's only one direction to move when you're lost, when you're in trouble, and that's toward the one that can help you. And when you come to Christ, he heals you. And he supplies whatever it is that's missing that you need. When, when you finally see, it's like this man, you realize that's what I always wanted. That's why verse 41 says that Jesus came near. And that's where we belong. We belong near to Christ, don't we? For too many people, the usual stance is to be far away from him. And many hold people, maybe people hold, hold Christ at arm's length. Even so-called Christians, they only want to get so close. I'll be a Christian, but don't ask me to develop a prayer life that's worth anything. Don't ask me to invest in that. I'll be a Christian, but I won't be a crazy Christian. Okay, Okay, I'll develop a prayer life, but don't ask me to share my faith with anybody else. I can't do that. Okay, okay, I'll share my faith, but don't expect me to invest my life in serving and in some kind of ministry over the long haul. And then finally the person says, all right, I'll get involved in ministry, I'll do something for God, I'll serve, but the baptism in the Holy Spirit, that's too much for me usual stance, even for many Christians, is to hold the Lord at arm's length and say, I'll let you come this far, but no further, no further. But where we should be is near. We should try and get as near, as close to Christ as we possibly can. Jesus came near, and that's when it happened. And when we come near, we realize that's what we always wanted, was to be near the Savior, When you finally see, you realize that's what Jesus wants too. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. That man was healed that day because Jesus wanted him healed that day. But even before that, in in verse 40, we get the indicator. Jesus stopped and he commanded that that man be brought to him. I want that man near me. I want him here. That was Jesus' idea. In fact, it came framed as a command. Bring that man to me. Jesus commanded that he be brought. It's what Jesus wants. He wants us to be near him more than we want to be near him. You realize that when you finally begin to see, but you also realize that your life gets a course correction. In this man's case, immediately he regained his sight and he began following Jesus you begin to see, you get a course correction in life. That's a phrase that pilots use. They're going one direction. The trajectory of that plane is that direction, but they they have a course correction for one reason or another, and they go off in another different direction. That happens when we begin to see When the Lord begins to open our eyes and deal with us and live in us, our life gets a course correction. We begin to follow Him. The direction of our life before Christ, no matter what it is, it is always the wrong one until Jesus comes on the scene. My my dad, his whole life long, almost, except for the last 10 years, he was looking, looking, looking. He would dabble in this and try that, and Jehovah's Witness one week and Mormon the next. And then he was a spiritualist, and and then he read New Age books, and and then he dabbled in this and tried that. And I, I used to say, Pop, you change your religion with your shirt. It seemed like he did, until he was led to Christ. And when he met Christ, he never turned back. And he never picked up the old books, and he never went back to the old ways and the old search. Why? Because he was satisfied that now he was going in the right direction. When you finally see your life gets a course correction, and you become contagious, this man did. He was praising God, and that's wonderful. He'd been healed, his his sight had been regained, and, and now he was excited, and he's praising God, it says. And when all the people saw it, what happened? They... Gave praise to God. When you begin to finally see, and the Lord does his work in your life, you become contagious. In fact, let me tell you, that is a rule of thumb, that Christ has actually done a work in your life, that you become contagious. If you are not contagious in your faith, let me suggest you have something, but you don't have what this man had. You don't have what this book describes, because when you finally begin to see, you become contagious contagious. He was praising God. Then they were praising God before long. Let me ask you, is your faith contagious? A disciple, you know what a disciple is? It's a follower. That's what the word means, a follower. And as you follow, others also will follow. That's another way you know that what you have is genuine, that you're following Christ and other people are following him because of you. It's contagious that way, and I'm not suggesting that hundreds have to follow for you to be a success. Just one. If just one follows because you have been following, ask yourself, who is that other one that's following Jesus Christ? Because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. It's very simple, really. Disciples of Jesus make disciples of Jesus. Just one other person. Just one other person in your life that you say, I'm going to stick with that one. And I'm, I'm not going to talk religion or church. I'm going to talk Jesus. I'm going to talk about my life-changing experience. I'm going to present him in such a way that they will love him too. And then once they start following, I'm going to still stick with them. I'm going to show them how I read the Word. I'm going to tell them what he tells me. I'm going to show them how I pray and how I seek God's face. And, And I'm going to open the door of my life, and I'm going to let them see what my walk with Christ is all about, the good, the bad, the ugly the warts and all, the victories, the defeats. I'm going to let them see that. That's what making a disciple is all about, you see. That's what it's like. You're going to let them see. Here's what it's, what it's like to have Christ living in me. Let me ask you, do you, do you dare to pray a dangerous prayer? There's somebody at your work, somebody maybe in your family, home, maybe somebody who is in this church. Last week, we had seven people who came to Christ, and they need someone to show them and bring them along. They need somebody to do that. I'm thinking of two children that we rescued years ago. They were, they'd been abandoned by their parents. We found these kids three or four days into that abandonment. They were both still in diapers, full diapers now. They were all by themselves living in squalor. I imagine when those parents had those babies, they were happy. But they had not fed and clothed those babies. They'd brought a child into the world that they didn't take care of. God forgive me, but I've thought very little of those parents when they did that. And I'm still needing forgiveness 20 years later because I still think very little of anybody that would bring a child into the world and not care for them. Let's not make that mistake with those that come to Christ. There may be somebody you know that needs you, even somebody in this church, as I said, who came to Christ even a week ago. And they need you to come alongside them, and they need you to help them. Find somebody new in Christ. Will you ask the Lord to show you just one that you can come alongside and, and you can be contagious with? You can lead somebody to your Savior and you can help them grow. That's the greatest thing in all the world. As you know, on Saturday nights, we pass out water, cold water, and socks. And a number of you supplied those socks, and thank you. But we go to different areas where people are extremely needy and hurting, and I want to be honest with you for just a minute, because if I'm not honest, I'm no good. But there's something about that whole thing that haunts me, particularly at night, and it happened again in the middle of the night last night as I saw the faces of some of those broken people that we'd just seen a few hours before, and, and I see their faces, and those of you that helped us last night, you, you see them too. And you see those faces, and they're, they're etched with an awful kind of misery. They're etched with the misery of a life that is desperate and wasted. In some cases, a life that is dependent on poisons and toxic chemicals that have no business being in a human body. And there's the hopelessness that you see in those faces that comes from a rebellion that started a long time ago and maybe started as something funny, and it's not funny anymore. And it's a rebellion that demands that I always do what I want to do, and look what it's done for them. You see that on the face. And you see people that that are carrying the weight of countless bad decisions. People get in that desperate kind of trouble, not from one bad decision, but from a series. You see it. You see a desperation and a hurt. I'm just telling you what comes back at night. That that smothers a soul. Even when it's covered by loud noise and laughter and nonsense behavior, that emptiness is still there, and you can see it. And so I, I see those faces at night. And you know what I wonder? It's not just sympathy, but I wonder what went wrong. And one of the things I wonder is how many are broken. Because some follower of Jesus did not tell them what they knew about Christ. If you talk to many people, they will tell you, oh yeah, I've heard about Jesus. But what did they hear? and Who did they hear it from? And so I wonder how many are there because some follower did not take the time, at the right time, to show them what they had been shown themselves by Christ. That somebody didn't come alongside that newborn and nurture that new faith. They may have been birthed and then they were abandoned. And I wonder at night, as I look on that awful waste, I see what what a neglected sheep looks like, unfed, untended. That's what I wonder if that's what we're looking at. We need to be involved in the greatest work in all the world. One of the simplest things, some of the simplest things sometimes escape us. The end of John's gospel, Jesus, risen from the dead, has called the midnight fishermen to the shore, and there he provides a breakfast for them, and they realize then who he is. That's cooked up breakfast. And he pulls aside one of the men for a private interview. One of his men, his spirit is crushed because he has denied Jesus three times, Simon Peter. When push came to shove, he said, I don't even know who Jesus is. And Jesus died alone. That's been working on Simon Peter for a long time now. And so Jesus pulls him aside and he begins to deal with him. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Jesus comes back again and he says, Simon, do you love me? He's a little vexed now. You know, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Third time. I wonder if it was a third time because there were three denials. Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know. Feed my sheep. I think when we see people that are broken and lost, like the ones I described for you, that what we're seeing is the awful waste, what lost and neglected sheep look like. We need to be involved in winning people to Christ for sure, but then just spending time with just one, just one. And that'll make all the difference in the world. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.